Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast, Testosterone. It's what makes men, well, men. My guest today argues that this hormone is a paradox. On the one hand, it makes men physically strong, courageous, and ambitious. But on the other hand, testosterone can contribute to prostate cancer and asocial aggression. My guest's name is Charles Ryan. He's an oncologist that specializes in prostate cancer. And in his book, The Virility Paradox, he walks readers through the upsides and the downsides of testosterone. We begin our conversation discussing testosterone's role in prostate cancer growth and how Charles artificially lowers T levels in cancer patients to prevent its growth. Charles then walks us through how our exposure to testosterone in the womb, yes, when you were a fetus, has a huge role in how we respond to testosterone later on in life. We then delve into the positives and negatives of testosterone, including the way it decreases the risk of Alzheimer, but increases your chance of balding. We end our conversation discussing whether TRT is the fountain of youth for older men or can turn young guys into beasts. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash virility. And Charles joins me now via clearcast.io. All right, Charles Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. So you published a book called The Virility Paradox. Tell us about your background. What got you thinking about testosterone? It's all about testosterone. What got you thinking about testosterone and wanting to write a book about it? Yeah, so I'm a medical oncologist and I focus on the management of prostate cancer. Actually, I focus on two diseases, prostate cancer and testicular cancer. And so both of them tend to involve testosterone. But most importantly, prostate cancer is a disease that is driven by testosterone. And the management of it for for many patients, if not most, ultimately, is the depletion of testosterone in a way to sort of cut off the fuel supply to the cancer. And ultimately, this disease, in those who die of it, it becomes resistant to these effects and it figures out a way the cancer does to make its own testosterone, to be really sensitive to testosterone. So testosterone is all around prostate cancer, and it's really the central foundation or the foundation of how we think about it and manage it. So I imagine as you've reduced testosterone in patients, you've seen you know, effects of that, like in their personality, things like that? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's one of the really interesting things as an oncologist in the management of cancer. This is really the only cancer I guess ovarian and breast would be the others potentially, but more so prostate. This is the only cancer where to treat the cancer, we have to deplete a chemical that is so fundamentally important 
to identity as testosterone is to the identity of a male. And, and that's something that we've done, you know, for a generation now, since the 1940s, when it was first discovered that you could do this. And interestingly, as I've been practicing medicine for many years now, I've had many, many people who've sort of worked in my clinic or met my patients, reflected uh, almost uh, jokingly, you know, your patients seem so nice in a way. And I used to sort of joke back with them and say, of course, they're nice. Of course, these men are nice. They have no testosterone, which is not always the case, of course. But that sort of joke in a way or that observation percolated within me over the course of many years. And I actually began to think maybe there's actually something to this. And so I started researching it and uh, I started, uh, you know, gaining an appreciation for all of the other factors, the things that testosterone does to our, our bodies and our brains and ultimately to our society. And that was the genesis of, of starting to write the book. And once it hit me, I started digging into the research on it outside of the world of prostate cancer and really began to realize that, that this chemical, this hormone has lots of roles in, in our world. So before we get into those, those roles testosterone plays and not only in the individual, but into society, I mean, I'm curious about this link between testosterone and pr- prostate cancer, I guess, without getting too technical and complex, like what, why is it that testosterone drives prostate cancer? Sure. It's actually pretty simple. You know, the prostate is an organ that is involved in reproduction. It's a reproductive organ. It doesn't really develop until puberty and, and it develops during puberty because of the rise of testosterone and the prostate's normal function in life is to create some of the fluids that are in semen that protect sperm and allow us to reproduce. So it's every bit linked to our fertility and to reproduction, and it comes to life, so to speak, at puberty and is driven by testosterone. And so, you know, a lot of people, a lot of men over, over as they age get enlargement of the prostate, but not prostate cancer. And that, in, also, in a way, is also driven by long-term stimulation from testosterone. So it makes sense then, if you think about cancer, that a cancer that arises from this organ that is driven by testosterone would itself be driven by testosterone. And that is in fact the case and has been known for 80 years. So yeah, the enlargement of the prostate, that's something if you have to get up a lot to go to the bathroom, that's one of the signs your prostate might be enlarged? Right. So so a lot of men, as they age, their prostate gets big. And so what happens is it uh, the prostate sits, by the way, you know, right at the base of the bladder. And so when the bladder is emptying, when you're urinating, if the prostate's big, that process stops early. And so the bladder doesn't, doesn't empty. And so you have to go to the bathroom more often. And so that's what's a common condition called benign prostatic hypertrophy or BPH. But it's a really common reason why men have to get up at night to pee. And that begins, you know, at different ages in men, but frequently as early as age 35 or 40, even people start to have that phenomenon. Right. I've heard, I don't know if this is true, but like if, if a man lives long enough, you're probably going to get prostate cancer. I mean, it's like a disease that of old age, basically that it's almost inevitable. Yeah, it is. And it is an age related disease. Now there's a couple points there. I think that your statement is largely true. I've heard that ever since I started studying medicine as well. The epidemiologic data say that about one in six American men will get prostate cancer. A lot of men will get prostate cancer that is not that aggressive. And it's, it's a cancer, interestingly, that doesn't always need treatment. So that's, that's interesting. But the other thing about it is getting back to the testosterone idea is that this is a cancer that is, again, 
being driven by sort of the chronic persistent stimulation from testosterone. And so the longer we get, if we have testosterone in our bodies, that may increase the likelihood of this occurring. Okay. And we'll talk about that later on when we talk about TRT, because we'll discuss, I want to discuss that a bit. So let's talk about, let's move away from prostates and just sort of, you know, what are some of the attributes that we know that testosterone drives in men, but also women too? Yeah. So uh, we can think about this in sort of both the positive and the negative way, <laughs> which is that, uh, you know, I, I attribute, I credit testosterone with a lot of really great things in, in life, such as our ability to be strong, our ability to, to navigate space, to defend ourselves, to, and I'm going way back now, even in our evolution, to hunt, to fight off uh, aggressors, to be aggressors insofar as that can be a good thing and to explore the world. I mean, I think that that's a pretty well, you know, a sort of known anthropologic phenomenon that, uh, that, this, that this chemical and other processes, you know, have helped create our, our ability to, to build the beautiful world that we have and survive the aggressors that we face. So that's a, a, a sort of a positive way to look at it. Testosterone can keep our bodies fit, not only muscular, lean, by reducing fat in our bodies. It can also help with certain aspects of cognition, even memory, and other aspects of, our, of how we think. There's a lot of evidence to show, and we know this from treating prostate cancer by, by taking testosterone away, that testosterone may help prevent things like diabetes and muscle loss, or sorry, bone loss, bone thinning rather, and, and other aspects like that. So it's no question in my mind that testosterone is an important part of health, both for men and women, mostly for men, because the quantities in men are about 10 times higher than they are in women. But that's, you know, and that's a, a topic of, of conversation in the book. The other, uh, you know, issue around testosterone and, and what it does to health is, of course, it drives reproduction, drives libido, drives, like I said, the prostate and keeps it, uh, keeps the reproductive organs uh, going. It's really sort of one of the one of the fuels of the reproductive system. So without testosterone, world, as I say in the book somewhere, I think the world would be a lot less exciting place. And in fact, we probably wouldn't have evolved to the point where we are today. And what about the negatives? So the negatives are things that a lot of it comes from some experimental psychology and other aspects. And some of this might be intuitive to the listeners. Too much testosterone too much aggression could be a problem. And I write a, a chapter and mention very frequently empathy, for example, and, and lack of ability to sense the emotions in others. Giving testosterone to research subjects has been shown to reduce their sensitivity to the emotions of others. It's been shown to sort of reduce moral ambiguity, like people are, are willing and able to make decisions that may be difficult decisions like hurting others or killing others even in experimental models. And in part of, in the book, I also talk, I try to bring it into sort of the modern world and, and talk about how, you know, we're not out there all hunting for our food and fighting wars every day, but things like higher testosterone levels in men whose partner has recently given birth is associated with a decreased level of attentiveness to the newborn. There has been studies that I cite, one of them in the book, responsiveness to a crying infant. You can actually measure brain activity when a crying infant is in your midst. And, they, and the researchers have shown that higher testosterone activity 
reduces or delays the responsiveness of this. Uh, and so this gets in a little bit to the empathy idea and, and our ability to connect with the emotional state of others. But also, as I think is important, and it, it's fairly consistent, research you know, shows that our parenting and our parental involvement is, is related to testosterone. So men with higher testosterone levels even have been shown to spend less time with their kids. There is a higher rate of divorce and marital strife and, and relationship problems in men with higher testosterone. And so those are behavioral things related to higher levels of testosterone. In terms of physical health related to higher levels of testosterone, you know, there, what, what we get on that level has to do mostly with what we learn from people who, who are taking anabolic steroids, which is not exactly taking testosterone, but it's taking chemicals with a testosterone-like activity. And we know that there can be problems associated with the heart, problems associated with potentially even affecting bone health in a negative way in certain circumstances. And so that's something that is uh, slightly related to the natural levels of testosterone but really comes at the extremes. So yeah, that's the virility paradox. And there's both this, these positives and negatives that come with it. Right, right. Okay, well, let's talk about this sort of get into starting from the beginning, right? From when you're a fetus and how testosterone affects you. Well, let's talk about this mm-hmm. testosterone sensitivity. Um, a lot of people think if you just jack up your testosterone levels, it's going to have all these you know amazing effects on you. But as you talk about in the book, some people are more sensitive to testosterone. Yep. Why, why is that? I think this is probably the most important teachable moment, teachable issue I'd like to get across with related to testosterone, which is it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. And there are, there are really three components that I, I term the virility triad that have to do with how sensitive we are to testosterone. We talk about testosterone levels as if that's all that really matters. But the other thing is fetal testosterone, which is um, how much you're exposed to before you're born. Uh, and, uh, and then the other thing, and I'll come back to that. And the other thing is the androgen receptor, which is the sensitivity of this receptor in all of these cells to the testosterone that's there. It's like a, it's like a trigger, right? It's got a certain level of sensitivity. But with regards to the fetal testosterone, I found this to be really fascinating. And frankly, this is not something I knew in my line of work that when we are in about our week 15 of gestation. So I guess that's towards the end of the first trimester and middle trimester, where testosterone levels spike in, in a fetus, uh, in both male and female fetuses, but it does so kind of across a whole spectrum. And so when this occurs, the brain is undergoing, obviously, a ton of development during fetal life. And the, the higher the, the fetal testosterone, the more there may be traits related to what we might assert would be related to testosterone later on in life. And this has been studied by both looking at levels of testosterone in the amniotic fluid and then traits in the babies that were subsequently born from those women, which is really interesting. <laughs> and then also there's a phenomenon where there's this thing called the 2D to 4D ratio. So if you look at your second digit, which is 2D, 2D your, is your index finger, and your fourth digit is your ring finger. And if you hold up your right hand, and you look at the ratio of how long your ring finger is to your index finger, that ratio is roughly proportional to the amount of testosterone that you were exposed to as a fetus. And that's because there are androgen receptors in our fingertips, crazily enough. And so if your ring finger is a lot longer than your index finger, that's actually a low ratio, like 0.75 or 0.8 or something like that, as opposed to 0.99. And that's 
higher testosterone in fetal life. And, and that, you know, that simple observation launched a lot of interesting research in behavioral science, if you will. One uh, that I cite in the paper is really interesting. A, a researcher named Coates in the UK looked at this factor, 2D to 4D ratio, in day traders in the London Stock Exchange and found that the income, the bonus of these day traders was directly proportional after correcting for a lot of other factors to their 2D to 4D ratio. And the implication was that day trading is a gamble in a way. It's a risk-taking behavior uh, and it requires, you know, sort of setting aside doubt, moving forward and sort of, you know, making these kinds of snap decisions. And I love this paper. It was in a very respected journal, the uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, where they showed that the yearly bonus of those with the highest fourth, the highest quartile of the 2D to 40 ratio was like 10 times that of the yearly bonus of those in the lowest, even after they corrected for the years of trading experience. And so what this says is that, you know, testosterone may have affected the brains of these individuals most well before they were born. And it, this says nothing of their actual testosterone levels in their blood. So a fascinating area. And this has been studied with respect. Women have the same effect and, and it drives the sensitivity to testosterone. So if you give if you give testosterone to somebody, then you measure their behavior or whatever after that. People who have different levels of this prenatal testosterone will respond differently to the testosterone that you give them. So that's kind of the idea that there's this altered, that there's this spectrum of sensitivity to what the levels of our blood testosterone do to our body. So if you have the longer ring finger, you respond better to testosterone? Yeah, it's it's actually in some cases the opposite because you're you're not you're more malleable by exogenous testosterone is one way to think about it. So the and and there's research kind of going in a lot of different directions, but but yeah, I, I think of the, the prenatal testosterone from what I was able to gather from it as a driver of of sort of how malleable we are by testosterone levels throughout life. And one of the things we don't know, which is interesting, is so, for example, in my world of, of prostate cancer, it has been shown that the longer ring finger, the longer ring to index finger ratio is associated with a higher risk of prostate cancer, which kind of makes some sense maybe, right? But what we don't know is whether that matters in terms of the survival of the people and whether the cancer is more aggressive or, or whatever based on that. So we're studying that. Do they know why some fetuses are exposed to more testosterone than others? It's genetic, really. It has to do with the genetics of probably both parents. And it's not something that's related too much to, to diet or health of the mother. Although, you know, one could imagine in a setting where the mother is in a health-impaired situation that the testosterone level could be lower. There have been some, uh, spe some speculation about diurnal rhythms and seasons of the year, for example, because testosterone does undergo a little bit of a, uh, of a rhythm with daylight and darkness, but that's not really been substantiated to the, to the point where I think that it's uh, completely known. Okay, so you talk about some of the attributes. If you're exposed to high, to high levels of testosterone in the womb, you're probably going to show more what we call masculine traits, risk-taking, yep. uh, that sort of not, lack of empathy, etc. Fair. Yeah, that's a, that's a decent way to put it. Okay. So let's talk about, I mean, I think we all intuitively know what happens if you have high testosterone. We've probably met those guys. They, they're, they're just, I don't know. They're just, they're manly. Right. But yep, yep. <laughs> what, what happens? We've talked about this a bit. Like what happens when you artificially decrease 
their testosterone with prostate cancer treatment? Do they just become these big teddy bears? What happens? What goes on there? <laughs> well, some do, you know, and this is what's, this is why I got interested in this topic, which is that, you know, and, and this is basically what I do in my, in my clinic. You know, I have the patients I'm treating, many of them have had suppressed testosterone for many, many years. And they do that because it controls the cancer. Now, there are some individuals who will, who will say to me, you know, when I have this conversation with them, look, I need to use hormonal therapy, which is what we call it, against your prostate cancer. They will refuse at first. And many, some of them will refuse the whole time because they will fear so much the loss of their testosterone or they will hear that it's so awful that they will do everything they can to avoid it. And for some of them, they're right to think that way because when they undergo this depletion, they really suffer. Others, not so much. And that's what I find to be interesting is that others actually either don't have much in the way of side effects. The other phenomenon, which I find really fascinating and I write about in the book, is there are others who feel like it's actually helpful to them when their testosterone goes away. And, and you know, for example, I'll have some people who will say, I used to think about sex all the time. It was, it was part of my daily stream of thought, you know, every minute on some level. And all of a sudden, uh, that's not there anymore. And I don't mind that because it's almost like I've freed up more mental space for other things. And I think that, uh, you know, this, this, this is a, an issue that some people face. I mean, a healthy libido is a great thing, but I think there are some people who have maybe have a little too much and that they appreciate it when it comes down. And I have this quote in the book from Plato's Republic, uh, you know, a, a book written, you know, over 2000 years ago in which they talk about this phenomenon of as you get older and you lose your, you know, your libido or your desire to be with a woman, it actually opens up other parts of your psyche. It opens up other parts of your mind. And as Plato puts it, it allows for the emergence of character. And once I saw that quote, I thought, wow, you know, this is something that is so fundamental to sort of human philosophy and psychology that Plato was writing about it, you know? So I see this whole spectrum in, in my patients and it's not a one size fits all treatment. With all of that said, you know, I, I would never say to a patient, you're going to feel better after we take away your testosterone because you're not going to have a libido. That's not what I'm saying because it's really troubling for a lot of people. From a physical perspective, just incidentally, you know, the signs and symptoms of low testosterone in, in my patients are also what you might see in patients who are not getting their testosterone depleted, but it's just going down naturally. Fatigue, loss of energy, loss of muscle mass, hot flashes can occur, and of course, uh, loss of libido. So getting back to your, your, your teddy bear comment, I would have to say that I actually do think that some people do kind of become big teddy bears, and, and that's what's part of the fun of, I think, or the joy of, of treating these patients is sometimes they kind of realize that, hey, you know, I'm in my late 60s, and my testosterone's gone, and it kind of changes them a, a little bit of a way, and, and many of them are wonderful people to begin with and, and become maybe softer and more empathetic as time goes on, and... Um, you know, I try to write about that in some cases in my, in my book as well. So again, this is not one size fits all. People are going to respond differently, right? Absolutely. Right. Uh, yeah. That thing about, you know, you don't think about sex all the time and it opens up a new life to you. It reminds me of that Seinfeld episode where George Costanza stops having sex and, <laughs> yeah. and he like becomes really like a genius. Yes. <laughs> I wish I'd had that idea. It would have been a good anecdote for the book, but right. yes. <laughs> right. So when you, when you reduce testosterone artificially in your patients, is this like a permanent thing or is it temporary? 
it's temporary. We have shots that we give. We can give it for to last for one month, for three months, that kind of thing. Rarely and historically, what was done is if, if you remove the testicles, obviously that's permanent. But we do it temporary for some patients. There might be somebody, for example, who's going to get, let's say, radiation treatment for their prostate, and they might take the hormone therapy for a year or two years. And Aaron, the character or the patient who I profile in the book, he is he gets a year of hormone therapy because we want to slow down the rise of his PSA. And so, you know, his story is really his one year on hormone therapy and his adjustment to sort of life as a trial attorney and thinking, you know, how's this going to, this going to take away my edge and what it does to him and things like that. So that's a pretty typical scenario. Now in, in, in men with more aggressive prostate cancers or, or more advanced disease, many of them will ultimately need to have permanent hormonal depletion. Gotcha. So let's get into some of these, these like fun I don't know, explorations of testosterone and how they affect us yeah. um, personally. So you talk about testosterone levels when men and women fall in love. What happens there and is there a difference between the two? Yeah, so I, I try to make a distinction between falling in love and, and, and libido and sex, right? Because they're kind of different things. And libido and sex is driven a lot by testosterone. It's that, it's that drive to perform sex, if you will. Falling in love is, is different insofar as it's more of a settling in and there's a, a chemical known as oxytocin, which is really the opposite of testosterone. And you'll sometimes hear, hear oxytocin called the cuddle chemical. And uh, if, you, if you give oxytocin to a man, it'll, it, you know, it'll make him more physically affectionate, but not necessarily in a sexual way. And so when, when falling in love occurs, you know, testosterone may in fact sort of go down a little bit and oxytocin may, may sort of drive it. That's also what happens, for example, when your partner has a child and you're, you're getting more into sort of parenting mode or nurturing mode is what I call it. And that's not a testosterone driven thing. What's really interesting is I write a little bit and there's a lot of science and sort of controversy around autism because there's a link or I should say an association between higher levels of this fetal testosterone that we were talking about before and traits that we might think of as autistic traits, behavioral traits that, you know, that again, a little bit of a generalization, but not expressing empathy, not expressing emotion, focusing on, you know, detailed things as opposed to understanding the emotions of people around you, et cetera. And that has been linked to high prenatal testosterone. But what's interesting is that, you know, there's sort of this theory that autism is kind of excessive male brain. It's called the excessive male brain theory, EMB. And, and in the treatment of autism now, they're studying giving oxytocin. So they're studying giving the opposite of testosterone in a way to see if they can improve uh, affection and empathy and those types of things. So these two chemicals kind of go yin and yang. In the book, I write about a, a patient of mine who, a uh, very dear patient who was widowed, had to go on hormonal therapy, was trying to meet women and date women and, and ultimately decided that he wanted to come off of all of his treatment because he, he wanted to be able to, to meet women, a woman. And ultimately what we discovered or he discovered is that falling in love can happen even when testosterone is low. And, and I think that that's, that's the, the key thing is that I wouldn't want people to think that libido and testosterone and virility and falling in love are all wrapped up in the same thing because they're kind of different. Yeah, that extreme male brain theory. Borat's cousin is the guy that came up with that. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, I'm sure he would love to hear you call him that. But um, yeah, he's actually very well respected. He's a genius. Yeah, he's really smart. Yeah, he's very well respected. Yeah, I mean, he's a he's a professor at Cambridge University, and uh, and he he's doing a lot of really important work, not only in autism, but just in sort of the acceptance of of autistic people and inclusion and things like that. And he seems like a fascinating person. I communicated with him by email about about my book and things, and I told him about some of my observations. And I actually wondered out loud to him why nobody has really looked at using the kinds of drugs that we use for prostate cancer in people with autism, right? Because we block testosterone. If, if autism is an extreme male brain, maybe there would be some benefits. Who knows? Right. So let's talk about, I thought this, this chapter was interesting about testosterone's connection to Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what is that connection? Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it, this is, this science is still evolving, but there have been observations that men who have prostate cancer who live a long time with low testosterone have a higher, potentially higher risk of Alzheimer's disease. And we clearly know that there are cognitive effects, even in the short run, from the hormone therapy that we give. So we we hypothesize that there's sort of a, a spectrum, right? So maybe there are men who are at risk for cognitive problems in the short run from hormone therapy, and maybe that's going to lead to an increased risk of Alzheimer's disease for them. But but the reality is what's really interesting is that, forget about prostate cancer for a second, is that the brain cells are happier in sort of in the dish if you grow them in a lab, for example. They're happier if there's testosterone in the mix. And if you take testosterone away, they get thinner, they get less protected, and they're more likely to become damaged. And so that's, that's one component of it. And, so, and, then, and then also research has shown that if you look at testosterone levels in the brain between the ages of 50 and 80, testosterone levels in the brain go way down, like by 80%. And so there's some theory that, that, that when we lose this, as we naturally lose this protection of, of brain testosterone, the neurons may in fact become damaged and, and that may lead to some impairments. Now, Alzheimer's disease is a pretty specific entity where there's an accumulation of proteins in the brain called amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles. These are things that accumulate. And you can, if you do an autopsy on somebody who had Alzheimer's disease, you can actually see these sort of actual plaques in the brain. And there is a, a way that our, the plaques are really the accumulation of kind of a protein garbage in our brain. And testosterone will stimulate the breakdown of some of this garbage. So it's almost like, if you will, testosterone helps our brain cells take out their garbage. And when testosterone is low, the garbage accumulates and it forms these plaques. And that's what Alzheimer's disease is. Now, that's a gross oversimplification, of course, but, but there is a connection. Well, so let's go out, let's move outside the brain to the cranium, mm-hmm. the thing that encases mm-hmm. our head. So testosterone has been connected with balding. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Because like, you know, testosterone stimulates facial hair growth. So you think it would stimulate growth on the hair in your head, but it doesn't. What, what's going on there? And there's a paradox, right? It, it stimulates growth of the beard and stimulates loss of hair on, uh, hair on top of the head. Exactly. So baldness is really interesting, not only for its connection to testosterone, but, but it is connected to some other uh, health uh, phenomena. So long story is that chronic exposure to testosterone, is, which is, by the way, converted into a chemical called DHT, 
which many people may know have heard of, dihydrotestosterone. And DHT stimulation in the follicles of the hair on the scalp will cause a thickening of the follicle. And, and it'll basically, if you think about the tunnel that the hair grows out of, that tunnel thickens. So the hair thins and ultimately, you know, the, that thinning hair goes away. And so that's, uh, again, a sign of chronic testosterone exposure and the, the health issues that it's linked to. For example, uh, baldness is a sign of chronic testosterone exposure, as is, you know, potentially heart disease and prostate cancer, as I mentioned. And so a couple of years ago, there was an observation made that men who are losing their hair at 45 on the top of their head, not a receding hairline, but the middle back of the head, they were at higher risk for prostate cancer, uh, for high risk prostate cancer. So, so this is a sign of sort of the testosterone role in our bodies. And, and on the beard, it's totally, it's totally the opposite, which is that uh, it stimulates hair growth and it doesn't stimulate the thinning out of those follicles. And I think the same goes for nose and ear hair as well, right? It stimulates, it keeps stimulating that growth. That's why when you get older, you get these bu- <laughs> bushes growing out of your ears. Yeah. I, I hadn't really delved into the science of nose hair that much. Maybe that'll be in the second book, right, uh, right. but, uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> because I'm sure we'd all like to see that chapter. Uh, but um, right. uh, I, yeah, I mean, basically you're right. Facial hair whether it's on the ear or the nose. Yeah. <laughs> so in the past few years, there's been this uptick I've seen, maybe just this past year, this uptick in companies selling pharmaceuticals that can reduce balding. So they, you take these drugs. It's not supposed to like grow your hair back. It's just supposed to slow it down. Uh, do you know, do you know what's going on there? Um, what those pharmaceuticals do and are there any dangers to those? Yeah. So a lot of those pharmaceuticals try to block the very effective testosterone on the hair follicle, right? So there's one that I highlight in the book called Propecia, which is very commonly used. And Propecia is a drug. It's the same drug that we use to, to slow the enlargement of the prostate, and except at a lower dose. And it blocks the conversion of testosterone to dihydrotestosterone and therefore reduces the amount of testosterone that's stimulating the hair follicle, basically. Now, uh, getting back to this issue of the sensitivity to testosterone that we talked about before, you know, there are many men, there's, in fact, there's a foundation out there following men who took Propecia for hair loss, who experienced, in some cases, irreversible loss of libido, irreversible sexual dysfunction, erectile dysfunction, and things like that, indicating that some young men, these are all men in their 20s and early 30s, some young men are extremely sensitive to these, these types of pharmaceuticals. So there's definitely a danger to them. And, and then there's other, there's more benign things, like there are shampoos that are designed to basically wash the testosterone out of the hair. And I've actually used one of those for, for years. And I think it actually works, but it doesn't penetrate into the systems, right? So it's not getting into the blood and causing behavioral effects, at least as far as I know. So let's get into um, sort of like, how testosterone affects us individually, but which ends up affecting us socially, the connection between testosterone and social aggression. I mean, here, this is kind of, this is kind of a paradox because there are some men who have high levels of T and I think they've done studies where they show criminals typically have higher levels of testosterone than non-criminals, but there are some men with high levels of testosterone and they're, you know, functioning pro-social members of society. So why, why is that paradox there? Yeah. So I would say that the science of criminality, if you will, like that's trying to link testosterone and criminal behavior is, is kind of dangerous territory, to be honest with you. It, it's, there's probably an association, 
But so this is a great example to use the phrase association is not causation. So for example, and we haven't talked about this much, the androgen receptor, which is basically, if you think of testosterone as the key, the androgen receptor is the lock into which the key goes. And so any of our body tissues that respond to testosterone, whether it's our muscles or our brains or our prostates or whatever, have lots of androgen receptors in them. And your androgen receptors are not a monolith either. You can have an individual genetically may have fast androgen receptors or may have slow androgen receptors. And in fact, there's a, there's a condition of very, very slow androgen receptors called, called Kennedy's disease where they don't develop muscles and they don't develop secondary sex characteristics, etc. So anyway, I, I, I give this introduction to say that there was a study that I cite in the book that was done in India where they looked at individuals in prisons in India. They looked at uh, controls who were not in prisons. They looked at people who had committed rape. They looked at people who had committed murder. And they looked at people who had committed rape and murder together, like violent rapists. I should say, I guess all rapists are violent, but I should say rapists who murdered their victims. And and what they found was that as they looked at this this number, it's called the CAG repeat. It's a molecular number. And the shorter, the the lower the number, the faster the energy receptor. And as they looked at the more violent the crimes were, they found that the antigen receptors were more active in those, in those subjects, in those prisoners, compared to controls. And they found a statistical significant association between that. Now, that does not mean that having a fast antigen receptor is going to make you a rapist or a murderer. It just is probably one ingredient in a very complex sociological and biological mixture that led to a violent act occurring. Now, having a fast antigen receptor might make you a better athlete, might make you stronger, be able to jump higher or do something else, or it might make you a better architect. So, you know, it, there's all kinds of ways that, that, that these things um, could have a beneficial effect. And, and the, the, the science of criminology based on hormone levels is, as I looked at it, I said, wow, this is kind of weak science, but it's also just kind of interesting too. But I really try to make the point that this is association uh, and not causation. All right. So I guess this is where environment would come in, right? On whether or not absolutely testosterone, like high testosterone or high androgen receptor sensitivity is either going to be positive or negative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and also this is, this is, I think, one of the overarching themes of the book, which is we've got this paradox, which is that testosterone and this, this whole system of virility has, has gotten us to this point in our evolution, right? We, we, we we're, we're good hunters. We're able to survive. We, we create cities and, 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 and societies and, and maybe testosterone helps that, but it doesn't always help it. And maybe this, this virility that got us to this point in our evolution is not quite needed so much anymore. And I begin to ask the question of, you know, knowing this and seeing this, are, are we in a position as men or as a species really to sort of temper this biology? In other words, you know, we're, we're not able to control our environment. We are able to control so much, so much of the natural world. And we now have a recognition of this paradox of, of virility, I think. But are we able to control it? And so, you know, when we think about empathy and we think about behavior, and really more importantly, when we think about nurturing and parenting and being just good people, and, and we think about how some of our impulses that are built into our biology through our evolution may make us not so good people. And, and, and I wonder if, if understanding that 
understanding this paradox of virility might allow us to think about how we act and behave in certain circumstances and, and actually ask ourselves from time to time, you know, is this the right thing to do or is this my testosterone acting? You know, something like that. So I bring that up because this, our society is changing so much. If you look at certainly American society right now, you know, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on, but there's a lot of uh, really great things going on. Fathers are spending more time with their kids than ever before. Parenting is being split between a, a, a man and a woman more than ever before. Our recognition and acceptance of, of transgender individuals is, is better than ever before. And so we are at a point where we're beginning to see some of the benefits, I think, of tempering virility. And I'm not a sociologist, and I'm not a psychologist, but I'm, I've sort of put the science out there and say, well, maybe this is something where, where understanding this can help us build a better society. So let's, let's talk about TRT. So you've, you've, I'm sure people who are listening, they've probably seen the commercials or the billboards, low, mm-hmm. get, getmyerectionback.com, lowlibido.com, whatever. Mm-hmm. So you have all these men who are in their 50s, late 40s, 50s, 60s, who naturally would have their testosterone levels would have gone down, but now they're starting to take TRT. How, how is that changing your job as an oncologist? Yeah, it's not changing my job that much, although I do occasionally run into patients who were diagnosed with prostate cancer after they started TRT. And that is probably because of carelessness on the part of their physician to not screen them for prostate cancer before they started testosterone. But it's also just an inherent risk of taking testosterone that you might wake up a sleeping cancer. But I think in the bigger picture, just in terms of healthcare, there's a couple points I look at and I say, TRT is great for some men. Some men really benefit from it. And, and I think it's good to have it there for some men. It gives them a sense, it helps them to reduce body fat, for example, maybe have more energy and certainly help boost libido. When, when, when one looks at the studies in which you have a control group and a TRT group, the studies seem to suggest that there are benefits, but they tend to be early and they tend to not persist beyond much of a year or so. And the, 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 the major variable that I, I, I write about in the book is a, a variable called vitality, which is a mixed outcome, if you will, from a, from a clinical intervention that has to do with energy and, and sort of uh, activity uh, of daily living type of things and enjoyment of these things. And vitality spikes a little bit when you start testosterone replacement therapy, uh, but by a year, it's back down to uh, essentially the same levels as on a placebo. But I would say that, you know, that that shouldn't dissuade somebody from considering it if they think it may be of benefit to them and their doctor agrees, uh, because there's a spectrum and some will benefit a lot and some will benefit not so much. And I guess I would just say that for those who, who don't benefit so much, it's, it's because of other things or... Um, or, or it may be because of just variability to which their body responds to testosterone, which is really the subject of the book because of the androgen receptor and because of fetal testosterone and things like that. Yeah, and I think a lot of younger guys are interested in TRT because they're thinking, well, you know, I don't might not have clinically low testosterone, but it's on the lower end. And if I can jack it up to over a thousand, right, I'll become this super beast and that might not be the case. Like at a certain point, you you might have enough testosterone in your body. Just like, well, we're not going to do anything extra with this extra testosterone you've given us. Yeah. So actually, you know, good good point by the way, because I I was referring to older men who have a declining testosterone uh, who take TRT, 
And then there's the younger men, you know, men in their 20s and 30s who are taking it because of, let's just call them cosmetic reasons or other things. And there it's, it's not studied as much uh, because what you have in those settings is you have a selection bias because of the data that are published on the use of testosterone are coming from gyms and places like that where people are highly motivated. That's different from being a, a 75-year-old man with a declining testosterone and being on a placebo-controlled trial where you get data with a control arm, right? So, but I, I guess the point remains the same. The effect that it has on the, on the subject of the man varies based on their individual biology. And I think that that's a key point to make at any age. Well, Charles, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? So the book is available online, uh, Amazon. It's actually published also by Ben Bella Books, and you can buy it directly from their website. It's also available on audible.com and hopefully your local bookstore, which would be uh, good for you and the bookstore. My work focuses on prostate cancer. That's my academic side. And men interested in learning more about prostate cancer, I would turn them to the Prostate Cancer Foundation, which is a great website, as well as your standard websites like Medscape and those others that might have uh, information uh, for them uh, on prostate cancer risk and prevention strategies and, and detection. Awesome. Well, Charles Ryan, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was Charles Ryan. He's the author of the book, The Virility Paradox, available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash virility, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, please give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.